This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters, Head of Retail Strategy at Acadia. And today I'm joined by a returning guest, Andrew Lipsman, who is a Principal Analyst at Insider Intelligence, focusing on retail and e-commerce. His recent coverage includes retail media networks, grocery e-commerce, D2C brands, social commerce, mobile retail apps, holiday shopping, and Amazon Prime Day. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thank you so much, Kiri. Uh, three-time guest. I'm trying to figure out how many it takes until I get like a blazer or something. Oh, actually, I have to tell you, there was a contest that the podcast that you're involved with that Insider Intelligence had a contest to win a gym bag and I won it. So I boost up a picture of me. <laughs> Look, there is a rising tide lift soul ships. I listen to so many retail podcasts. I obviously have my own, but I listen to more than I produce, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. Well, that's awesome. Reimagining retail. Yeah. Well, yes, I hope I can get a gym bag or something of that ilk if I'm on a fifth time. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, you have, I reached out because you've recently published a report about in-store retail media and you're super bullish on this opportunity for advertisers. And I think we're going to talk about that amongst other topics. I think a, a really good interview that you did recently was on the CPG guys podcast. So if people are looking to do a deep dive on that topic in particular, go check that one out. But I wanted to just touch on this one with a couple of questions here. If some thinking about in-store retail media and all the different sort of display options and targeting, some people who've been in the industry for a while might call this the new end cap or the new trade promotion. Is that a limiting way to think about this or is that sort of, you know, is this the next evolution of trade marketing? It is a limiting way to think about it. And I'm really, I would say, beating the drum around thinking bigger and thinking of this as the next major media channel. And one, I think we've had this moment where, you know, people are watching less and less linear TV and the CPMs keep going up and up because the inventory is scarce. It's still high quality for the impressions that you can get. But the ad rates are going up because there's nowhere better for those dollars to go. So my point of view is, while you're not going to get the same 30-second storytelling in the in-store channel, you can get really high-quality media, and we need to think quality first. You get quality, you get creative experiences, brand safety, contextual relevance. It's really a great branding channel. So, And I think that if brands start to think of it as media, national media, then you start to get out of that trade promotion trap where you're just kind of shifting budgets from the retailer and you start to unlock different types of budgets. So that's good for the retailer. For the brand, I think they benefit just by realizing the opportunity of really high quality media that drives branding and performance. So they should be, and listen, some media cost efficiencies by starting to be able to shift some budget out of media that's getting really, really expensive. Mm. That makes sense. It's sort of like more analogous to ambient advertising, like a billboard or a Times Square or a subway or something like that, where you're reaching a, you know, you can scale it into different geographies, obviously, but it's more analogous to that than an end cap necessarily. 
Yeah. And well, it will be used at the end cap. So that's one of the surfaces, I think one of the high value surfaces. So I don't want to say that there's not similarities there, but it's so much more than that because you have surfaces all over the store. There's the end cap, there's between aisle signage, there's signage at checkout, there's signage at the front of the store. There's actually signage in the adjacent exterior in the parking lot. You've got cooler doors, you've got smart cart screens, Right. And so I think there, you don't necessarily want to have every single one of these surfaces in a store be a digitized experience. It can be too much. And I think retailers rightfully will focus on the importance of still managing CX. But if you select the right surfaces and you do it in a way that respects the consumer, I think it can be a real win-win-win for the customer, the retailer, and the brand. And in my research, I found that consumers are pretty receptive to it. Hmm. So do you think that, at least for now, or looking out into the future, that the opportunity primarily exists for enterprise brands that are doing you know, national TV campaigns, for example? Or do you think that there's opportunity also here for you know, the mid-market as well? A hundred percent, it's both. I think I said maybe the starting point is big national brands because you can get national reach through physical stores and physical stores have a lot of reach. But also, you have a lot of regional players and you could do regional buys and you also have the same thing is happening in local TV. It's harder and harder to reach the right audiences through local television. So why shouldn't those budgets migrate to more regional and local opportunities in the physical store? And that's both for endemic brands and non-endemics. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think that the non-endemic play with retail media is hugely <laughs> understated. And it has the same, you know, you're talking about the idea of this just being trade marketing as being a limiting belief and trying to shake that off. I think retail media for non-endemic brands, definitely an opportunity that's flying under the radar for you know insurance companies, colleges, hospitals, et cetera. And it's better, absolutely. And it's a lot of those are local and it's better suited to in-store environment. Now they do need to be careful with non-endemic, right? You don't want to have things that just don't have enough relevance. So I think there are different levels of when endemic, non-endemic advertising works, but I think there's plenty of opportunity and any retailer should be thinking through the categories that make the most sense for them and where it doesn't detract from the customer experience. Yeah. So do you have any sort of examples from advertisers to share about how this is working well to give to paint a picture for us? Well, I'll go back to an example that we heard from Amazon last year during their Unboxed event where they talked about craft. So Amazon in their Amazon Fresh stores has kind of between aisle signage. And I may be misremembering the exact numbers, but I think it was something like a 30% increase in sales for, for some craft brands. And, you know, I think about this in my own experience. I like to use the craft macaroni and cheese example. I've got two grade school kids who take macaroni and cheese for lunch probably one day a week on average. I never once walk into a grocery store with craft macaroni and cheese on my list. Mm. But it's if I walk by the aisle and I see it, I'll always pick up a box or two. Always. It is the lowest consideration purchase. I'll always do it. But if I had that reminder, maybe at the front of store when I walked in or between the aisle and I just saw that little reminder, I'd be much more inclined to do that. And by the way, if you're craft, for example... I don't have to drive, you know, more purchase of the brand with promotions, trade promotions. That little reminder makes it so I'm much more likely to get full price for that box when I sell it. 
and increase the frequency of purchase and all of these sorts of things that I think ultimately drive lifetime value for the brands. So I just think it works especially well in the grocery store environment. This is going to lead into our next discussion, which is about retail media measurement. But how are advertisers thinking about incrementality from this type of media? Yeah, well, that's the big question. So first off, I love the incrementality conversation. I think you have been the earliest and probably biggest champion that ROAS is a blunt instrument and it doesn't tell the whole story. What I hear from CPGs in particular is they are leading, the brands are leading the conversation on incrementality and some of the leading retail media networks that serve CPG brands are leading the conversation on incrementality. So I think this is all part of it. You have to prove that you can't just take credit for a sale that was going to happen anyway. You have to prove that the media actually drove that incremental purchase. And that's something that in-store in particular, I think is a bit easier to prove as long as you have the data to support it. But it's, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of conversation and I would say it is not well sorted in terms of the best methods for proving incrementality or that the metrics today often don't provide that complete picture, but it's where we need to go. And I think CPG brands are starting to demand it and are absolutely going to demand it the further along this path that we get. This podcast is brought to you by Acadia, a trusted partner for challenger brands who are looking to make the best use of every marketing dollar, whether that is through SEO, performance media, Amazon and retail media, analytics, or organic social. To learn more, visit acadia.io. That's A-C-A-D-I-A dot I-O. All right, well, let's shift gears into retail media measurement, which is something that we're both very passionate about. I think there is work going on right now with various industry bodies to look into and recommend common standards of measurement in retail media. What do you think has stopped retailers from doing that so far? The simplest answer is they are not advertising platforms as that's not their primary business. So it's not their core competency. They're all evolving. And I think they're doing a great job for, you know, how new of an experience this is and how different it is from retail, but it just takes time to build out. And if we go back to the days of, you know, the emergence of Google and Facebook as major channels, they built out a lot of capabilities, a lot of measurement, a lot of analytics over a long period of time. So to me, this is all part of the natural progression. But what I think you're hitting on is that this issue has really risen to the top and very quickly. I heard nothing about standardization as an issue with platforms. I think the proliferation and for brands, the need to work with, you know, several of them has made it hard to optimize across the different networks. So the pain point has risen. a did research where they asked about the biggest challenges with retail media networks, according to ad buyers, and lack of standardization was by far number one. The two most common things that I hear about are different attribution windows and differences in viewability or verification metrics. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. For anyone who missed it, we recently did some research and released a framework about Amazon DSP metrics. And in getting into the weeds, to mix metaphors in a terrible way, like understanding more of how the sausage is made, seeing how viewability on Amazon is looked at quite differently to other platforms like Google. So I think, you know, in and of itself, if you're looking at Amazon DSP in the context of Amazon 
sales and activity and how that sort of how DSP and PPC work together, it's okay. But if you're a brand who's advertising across several channels and you want to understand which ones are performing best, whether that's with actual sales or with reach or growing market share or whatever it is, yeah, you absolutely want to be comparing apples to apples. Yeah. And I mean, the IAB led the charge on standardization around viewability, oh, I would say almost 10 years ago now Mm -hmm. when it comes to digital publishers. So they've been talking this game for a long time and they do align around standards. It was easy to move the conversation past that in retail media because it was all about the conversions. So right? The, the dollars were going in because it was driving a return on ad spend. But if you want to get more sophisticated, you need to kind of understand all phases of the funnel. And knowing that an impression actually occurred or was visible to the end user helps you get better metrics. So now they're, I think, you know, picking their head up and saying, okay, we need more consistency around this so we can understand our conversion funnel and optimize according to that. But it's really hard when I'm getting different measures of glance views or whatever the metric might be across the different platforms. Right. In one of your recent pieces for Insider Intelligence, which we'll link in the show notes, you call Amazon the 800-pound gorilla of the retail media space and all of the ways that Amazon has the most advanced offering in retail media by a long shot in my view as well. So super interested to hear your opinion on whether you think there's any future where retail media networks from some of these smaller players could collaborate in sharing non-identifiable customer data in order to actually you know, compete meaningfully with Amazon. Is that in any realm of possibility in your opinion? I think it's absolutely going to move in that direction in the next couple of years. And past its prologue, we've seen this happen across every digital ad market that exists Basically, you always have kind of the large dominant player in the space. Amazon's about 75% plus of the market today. So I think that's the what everyone else has to do is try and compete on some level of scale. Now, Walmart has credibility already, yep. and they're continuing to win budgets and improve their offering. And really, you probably have at least, I would say, a dozen players that are going to be able to build their own viable let's call them walled gardens in this space. So I think there's, we'll be able to see a lot of robust players in retail media, but at some point, the mid and the long tail is going to have to kind of aggregate the opportunity. How are they going to have to do that? I think that, you know, it's basically some sort of a data consortium. You're going to need to have, I think, a unique ID as the central spine so that you can look at all this disparate purchase data across categories and connect it with individual IDs so that you get that 360 view of the consumer. And then the question becomes, what sort of a cut does any individual retailer get from providing data to that consortium? And that's my open question is, I don't know how big that combined offering or capability can be. And if it ends up being a really worthwhile business, the flip side of it is it doesn't take a lot of revenue to make it worthwhile because just forking over data essentially doesn't come with a lot of costs. It's very high margin revenue. So if it's low lift and high margin, you know, maybe a relatively modest revenue opportunity is still driving the bottom line for a business. Yeah, super interesting because we know retail media as a source of revenue is highly profitable. And a lot of these, as you say, long tail retail media networks, they have not built their own 
rails in general. They're leveraging Promote IQ or Crudio or Citrusat, right? So they're already sort of running on someone else's rails and paying for that privilege, I guess. And so then if they're going to participate in a consortium, like you say, they're going to need to contribute to that as well. So we might see the return on having a retail media business sort of diminish beyond what it is right now. Yeah. And the key that when I say you need a 360 view of the consumer, when I think about Amazon, Walmart and Target, they are seeing grocery purchase behavior. They're seeing multi-category purchase behavior and they're seeing high frequency of occasions. So they just have a lot of data that really does tell you a lot about the consumer. That data then allows you to determine the right audiences to reach. So it's about as you move up the funnel and have these offsite experiences, that first party data is super valuable. For most other retailers, that data is not that valuable. Retailers will often think of their own data as more valuable and maybe within, you know, a specific set of advertisers in their category, there's some value, but often it's lacking the depth of purchase and they certainly don't have the 360 view if you're a specialty retailer. So it's actually a case where the value can be provided only when you get a bunch banding together and providing that data. So that's where the non-endemic opportunities are going to come in. That's where the major offsite targeting opportunities are going to come in. But, you know, they're kind of competing against the trade desk Mm -hmm. otherwise. And I don't think that they can win that battle. Purchase data is super valuable and it's better than behavioral data or psychographic data in many ways. But you can't realize that opportunity unless you have enough of it. And most retailers don't. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I think about what my peers at Acadia in our analytics practice do with CDPs and how they're able to, we've got several retailers as clients and what they're able to mine in terms of, you know, different audience types visiting stores and how that translates to email campaigns and, you know, future store visits and things like that. Yeah, it's very powerful, like you say, when it's your own data and there's a premium on that. Like if I have a network of stores and I understand what kind of customers are coming in, if I have this kind of message and isolate that group, then I get more store visits the next week. Super powerful, but that may be less powerful in the hands of someone else unless there's, as you say, that unique user ID that can bring an understanding of an individual or a household together, just like we have with Amazon that makes a whole lot of sense because with Amazon, you're shopping across so many different categories from grocery, pet, entertainment, every single category. So that's why it's so powerful because a beauty brand might be able to tap into some psychographic aspects of, you know, people who do a lot of outdoor activities might be more interested in a sunscreen type product or something like that. So Yeah, that 360 view, the unique user ID would make these retail media sort of networks way more powerful together. Yeah, and it's a big opportunity that's only getting bigger. But as I think about how and when this plays out, I think everybody has taken their first best crack at building a formidable walled garden retail media network. In the next two years, there's going to be some shakeout. Well, Gap just closed theirs down. They did. Well, so... I've talked about this a lot recently. I will say I kind of, I've been working on this slide. I have not published it yet, but it was like multiple tiers of how strong of a retail media network offering do you have at the end of the day based on a lot of these same things? How good is your data? 
And as I started sorting through them, Gap was alone on my bottom tier. Really? And, wow. And here's the reason. Here's the re- <laughs> but here's the reason why. It's a brand selling its own brands. So who's going to buy that ad space? You have to be a multi-brand retailer or it doesn't make sense. So then the only opportunity becomes offsite media. and Or non-endemic. Is, yeah. Is Gap, who's going to, what brand that's non-endemic is going to say, Gap has the data that I need. Gap's a great retailer, but it's just the retail media network offering never made sense. And I think other brands, even the best brands in the world, if they're just selling their own brands, I really struggle to see how you're going to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but they were unique. They were unique in that way. So I will say that the same principles are going to apply to any brand that is, you know, effectively a D2C brand selling their own brands. Yeah. It does make me think about stores like Aldi or Lidl, where they're, you know, they're basically selling their, only their own brands as well. Right. And do they have retail media networks? If they have, I haven't heard of them yet. <laughs> Trader out. Joe's, right? Yeah. yeah, Trader Joe's. Yeah, exactly. All right. So yeah, this has been super interesting. We'll link up to some of this research in the show notes here. Just to close, everyone's getting back to conferences this year and getting excited about mixing in real life with people they might not have seen for a while. You're on the speaker circuit very frequently. I'd love to hear what conferences you're going to be attending this year and how do you sort of choose between speaking opportunities? Well, I think it starts with the tentpole conferences. Mm-hmm. So like, I guess the bigger ones would be NRF at the beginning of the year, Shop Talk, Retail Innovation Conference, and Grocery Shop. Those are kind of the four big ones, most on my radar. There are some other key retail ones that I haven't traditionally participated in. And then I would say I'm really starting to sift through for opportunities that are focused on retail media. And we're just starting to see some of those conferences emerge. You've got the Path to Purchase Retail Media Summit. There's upcoming next month in May, the Retail Ascendant Retail Media Bootcamp. So we're starting to see these pop up. And I would say that's kind of my filter. And mm. then trying to participate in other virtual events along the way that are easy enough to jump in on and participate. But yeah, as for physical, it's always tough. You always have to make those trade-offs. And sometimes it is if the opportunity presents itself and I have a speaking opportunity, I'll usually jump on it. Nice. Yeah, good good stuff. I'm looking forward to it. I'll see you at the Retail Innovation Conference in Chicago. That'll be a good one. Yes, oh, I can't wait. It's always nice to have a conference in my hometown. Yeah. So I definitely look forward to hosting some people at the best time of year to be in Chicago, by the way. Yes, absolutely. Sounds good. Well, I'll see you then. And thank you for coming back on the show. Appreciate you sharing your latest thinking with us. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Carrie.